Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Dr. Trita Parsi is with us. He's the executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. QuincyInst.org is the website. His Twitter handle, tparsi, P-A-R-S-I. Uh, Dr. Parsi, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I saw this piece that you authored or that you were uh, talking about, about Mike Pompeo preparing an October surprise. And recalling, as I have, in fact, I've found some of Trump's old tweets and retweeted them on a couple of occasions. Back in 2012, when Barack Obama was running for re-election, I believe it was twice, it might have been more times, in the months leading up to October and November of that year, Donald Trump kept tweeting that any minute now, Barack Obama was going to launch a war with Iran because that's how American presidents get themselves reelected. They have little wars. And we all remember, you know, Reagan with Grenada and George W. Bush telling his biographer when he was writing a charge to keep in 1999 that if he became president, he was going to have a war that he wasn't going to make the mistake his daddy did to have a three-day war. He was going to have a real war that went right to the next election so he could get himself reelected. And, you know, Trump apparently took all that to heart. You're seeing this. What is the big picture here, Dr. Parsi? Well, the, the big picture is that we're seeing that the folks that essentially Trump has delegated Iran policy to have been some of the most effective people in the Trump administration in terms of manipulating Trump to do what they want and make Trump think that it's good for Trump. And that is the entire Iran policy, this idea of maximum pressure as a way of getting the Iranians to the negotiating table is how they sold it to Trump. But in reality, they know quite well that it's a strategy aimed at bringing the United States into war with Iran or at a minimum destroy the nuclear deal and create a permanent state of enmity between those two countries. The thing that is happening right now, though, is that within that context, the media has not picked up a very dangerous development, which is that Pompeo has signaled that come Monday, this coming Monday, the United States is going to start implementing U.N. Security Council sanctions against Iran that actually do not exist. And I'll get back to that in a second. And they're going to do so by uh, confiscating Iranian ships in international waters. And claim that they're like doing so would, it certainly would be. It would be an act of war. And claiming that they're doing so because of U.N. Security Council sanctions having been reimposed on Iran. Now, no one else in the U.N. Security Council, with the exception of Dominican Republic, agrees that these sanctions have been reimposed. In fact, they have in unison rejected Pompeo's effort to what is called snap back these sanctions. Now, Pompeo is not a man known to be restrained by reality and is going forward and claiming that they have been snapped back and they will come into effect Sunday at midnight, meaning that come Monday, the United States may do this. If that happens, there's a high likelihood that there will be a, some form of a military confrontation. The reason I think Pompeo is pushing for this right now is, and why he may end up getting a green light for it is because I think he's going to try to sell it as a way to be able to shake up the elections in the United States, essentially an October surprise. So my own suspicion is that this may not happen on Monday, but if Trump's re-election bid starts to come into real trouble, then this is a card that Pompeo will put in front of him. It will be a very dangerous thing, of course, because war would be a disaster. But this is what Pompeo has been angling for ever since he became Secretary of State. And this may also be his last chance, assuming that Trump may not be able to win a second term. 
four states have started early in-person voting. Several other states have already mailed out ballots. So the election is on, as it were. So it may be that the schedule for October surprises has moved into September. Or do you think that, you know, maybe they'll do this and, and you know, pull all the triggers on Monday except for intercepting an Iranian boat and then wait for an opportune time or wait for a boat that might be easy to sell to people, like a boat that contains something that might be a little sketchy, weapons or oil going to a country that we don't like or something like that? Well, the latter has already happened. It was about a month ago that the U.S. intercepted not Iranian ships, but ships that apparently had Iranian oil on it that was heading towards Venezuela. There were also ships mm. that were taken in the Arabian Sea. However, all of those ships and vessels were intercepted in areas that were pretty far away from Iran, meaning that it would be very difficult for Iran that doesn't have much of a navy to do much about it. The fear now is that precisely because they may want to have a reaction for Iran in order to have a pretext for war, they will start doing the very same thing they've already done, but now start doing it in the Persian Gulf. Wow. Wow. Let's assume that something like this happens, that a ship gets intercepted by the U.S., that they claim this mantle of U.N. protection or you know, excuse that they're enforcing U.N. mandates. What sort of response is most likely to come from Iran, and how might that be used? I fear that if it happens in the Persian Gulf, where the Iranians do have military capabilities, it will be very difficult for them politically not to do anything. I don't suspect that they will want to do something that would give the Trump administration the pretext of war, because I think they're hoping, you know, they're probably hoping that he doesn't get reelected and they want to sit out the clock on this one. But at the same time, if it happens in the Persian Gulf, which is right in their territory, it will be very difficult for them not to do anything. And we also have to keep in mind, you have elements inside of Iran that are much more hard-headed than the Rouhani government, who may actually welcome some form of a confrontation and, and who will see that as being beneficial for them as well. So it's a very dangerous situation. The next couple of weeks are going to be quite uh, tense. And the thing that caused me to write it was that I was just stunned that almost no one in the media had picked this up. I mean, this is based on briefings that Pompeo and, and Elliot Abrams have given, as well as a tweet that Pompeo said, in which he specifically said, the clock runs out midnight September 19th. And from September 20 and onwards, those sanctions are back in place. If Iran were to do something like closing the Gulf, the, the Straits of Hormuz or something like that, what are the possibilities that this could turn into a regional war as well as a war against the United States that Saudi Arabia, for example, might jump into the act? I don't think the Saudis or the UAE or anyone else would like to jump into the action. They want the United States to jump in. They want the United uh, States to do this war for them. They have no interest of in having any of their own men die in that war. But that doesn't mean that they're not in favor, at least at, at certain times, they have been in favor of the U.S. doing it. I don't think the Iranians will close the, the Strait of Hormuz because that would be a provocation and something that would cause anger in many other places, not just in the United States. So it will probably be targeting those very same U.S. ships or ships of U.S. allies. Dr. Trita Parsi, he is the executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, the website quincyinst.org or responsiblestatecraft.org. T. Parsi is his Twitter handle. Dr. Parsi, thanks for dropping by. Thank you so much for having me. This is the Tom Hartman Program. There has been a leaked FEMA memo. I'll just read from it. A leaked internal memo from the Federal Emergency Management Agency has reportedly revealed a near 17% spike in coronavirus-related deaths inside the United States last week. ABC News obtained the memo that showed the trend of new deaths has shot way up since the start of September. It said that 5,906 coronavirus-related deaths were recorded in the U.S. from September 9 to 15, which represents a 16.6% increase compared with the period seven days earlier. You know, these guys are trying to mess with the election to the point that it's basically unmanageable. And so the election will get thrown into the House of Representatives. This is the actual quote from Donald Trump. He said, it's not just the counting of the ballots, by the way, which will take forever. You think November 3rd, you might not have, I guess, at a certain point, it goes to Congress. At a certain point, it goes to Congress. You know that. This was at his White House press briefing yesterday. 
why is this not the top story in the news? And then on top of this, you get the RNC and the New Jersey Republican State Committee and the Trump campaign just asked a federal judge to prevent New Jersey from counting mail-in ballots until Election Day. Ballots are coming in. Well, I don't know if they're coming in right now in New Jersey, but, you know, in the next few weeks, ballots are going to start, mail-in ballots are going to start coming in. And a lot of states want to count these ballots in advance so that on Election Day they can say, okay, well, you know, we got about 70% of the mail-in ballots already counted. And here's the result from those, plus here's what we got from our voting machines, plus in a few days we'll have all the rest of the ballots. And the Trump administration and the Republican Party do not want them to be able to say, here's what mail-in ballot count is for at least a week or two. And then Matthew Miller, a former official with the U.S. Department of Justice, he said, the nightmare scenario I can't stop considering. If Barr wanted to prosecute a local mayor, Bill Barr yesterday talked about putting Seattle's mayor, Jenny Durkin, in jail, prosecuting her criminally. So Matt Miller says, the nightmare scenario I can't stop considering. If Barr wanted to prosecute a local mayor over a policy dispute, what is he going to do on November 5th when local election officials are still counting votes and Trump says it's time to stop counting votes? Where does that go? Patrick in Seaside, California. Hey, Patrick, what's up? How are we not screwed, Tom? Because if I'm not mistaken, 32 out of 50 state legislatures are controlled by the Republicans. It might be 31. I think Alaska is split. And then the remainder states are all Democrat-controlled. If every Republican state, even if Biden wins each Republican state by a landslide or most of them, what if all 32 Republican states or the ones that vote for Biden just refuse to certify, certify their, their electoral the slates? Their then slate of then Trump yeah. steals the election in the House of Representatives by a 32 state landslide. How, do, how are we? Right. As I've been predicting states? since March. As I have been predicting since March, yes, absolutely. And uh, and by the way, I, this is just some random hypothetical state, right, that I'm pulling out of my imagination. But let's say that you've got a state where you've got a Republican majority in the state house of 50 members, 50 Republican person majority. And in the state Senate, that Senate is controlled by Democrats, and they've got a 30 person majority in the Senate. Democrats do. In your scenario, Patrick, I think you think that that would be a split vote, you know, half for Trump, half not. Not true. The way it works, the way the 12th Amendment works and the amendment to the 12th Amendment, essentially, which was the law that was passed in 1878 to update the election laws with regard to the 12th Amendment, the total population of the state house and the state senate get combined and every, everybody gets one vote. So you've got 50 more Republicans in the house, you've got 20 or 30 more Democrats in the senate. So that means that ultimately you're going to have a 20 or 30 majority Republicans in the combined body. That combined body is what casts its vote for the elector for that state. I have not gone through on a state-by-state -state basis and added these up. Uh, it's, one of, it's been on my so to-do list for a long, long time. So it's not, and, so you combine both houses in, in, uh, both houses in each state legislature, not each House of Representatives, the, state House That's correct. So I think that you've got an even larger majority of Republicans is what I'm saying, Patrick. What I thought I read, and I could be mistaken, I thought what I read was that most states except for Alaska, whoever controls the, um, the legislature in each state, they control both houses. The Democrats control 17 or 18, the Republicans 32, and then Alaska is split. One house is re Republican, one is Democrat. So I think those 32 states are all, both houses are controlled Republican. I've got to go but, through and do the math on this. I've got to update the article. What, if one state is both houses are controlled, both houses are controlled by a majority. So wouldn't the total of both houses combined be the majority? Yes, of course. What I'm saying is if you've got 32 states that are that where both houses are controlled by Republicans, it's not just going to be a 32-state majority in the election. It could be 35, 36, 37, or even worse than you're describing, Patrick. That's what I'm saying. One of the founders of the progressive next-gen super PAC, Midas Touch, which has produced just some extraordinary, extraordinary videos. Uh, it's, it's run by three brothers who are living in quarantine. Midas Touch, M-E-I-D-A-S, Touch, 
Brent.com is the website and uh, also the Twitter handle. Brent Mysalis is on the line with us. And Brent, uh, number one, thanks and congratulations on your great videos. And number two, you've got a, a show coming up here on SiriusXM. We're, of course, on SiriusXM right now on SiriusXM Progress. Tell us about your videos, what inspired that, and tell us about your new show. Hey, Tom, first of all, big fan. Thanks so much for having me. I excited to talk to you about Midas Touch Radio coming this weekend on Sirius XM. We're three brothers. We started this in quarantine just as, as concerned citizens. We, like everybody else, were watching the news. We were frustrated. We were screaming at each other. And at a certain point, we realized, is there anything that could be done about the state of the country? And so we put our minds together, my older brother, Ben, being an attorney who most notably represents Colin Kaepernick and has done a bunch of civil rights cases, my younger brother, who's a marketing expert based out of New York, and me, who I, I worked for five years as a digital editor at the Ellen DeGeneres Show and ran digital media for a sports league, and we said, let's combine those talents and let's do something to impact this election and, and have our voice be heard. And so we started it as a blog, Might have Touch started as a blog, and quickly evolved into us making these videos, which really just quickly and immediately took off. It feels like a long time ago, but it's really not. By the time our first video released, it was probably around April 15th. A few months later, we've made over 80 ads against President Trump and for Joe Biden. And we've gained a lot of traction online. And we're just really thankful for the support. And we just hope we're making our small part to help impact uh, democracy and help, help save it. That's great. And it is spelled more like your last name than the old king. It's M-E-I-D-A-S, touch. Tell us about the show that you're going to be doing. Yeah, so the show we're doing is going to be called Midas Touch Radio. It's airing this Saturday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, right here on, on Sirius XM Progress. We're really excited to be able to connect with fans in a way that we've never done before. I mean, we've built this huge follower base on Twitter and on Instagram and Facebook and TikTok. But to be able to be live with the fans, talking to them on Sirius, is going to have a whole new dimension to it. And we're excited to talk about the stories of the day, talk about issues on people's minds, and once again, just push forward and, and try to do what we can. Um, we view the current state of the country as an existential crisis, and we need to get Trump out. I mean, that's priority number one, and we need everybody to, to join us for that ride. Trump, in his press conference, said that this election was going to go to Congress. That's under the 12th Amendment. This happened in 1876 when the Democrat, Sam Tilden, uh, won both the Electoral College and the popular vote, but he didn't hit the Electoral College threshold to win, even though he had more electoral votes. Today, that would be 270 votes. He didn't hit that number, and so it got thrown to the House of Representatives. In the House of Representatives, under the 12th Amendment, each state has one vote, and that one vote is determined not by the members of the U.S. House of Representatives, even though they cast the vote. It's determined by the House and Senate of the individual states. And a majority of individual states are controlled by Republicans, which means Donald Trump gets reelected. He said that, and I'm just boggled that nobody's talking about that. That is number one. And then number two, that basically, you know, he seems to be pursuing a herd immunity strategy. They're no longer telling states to even recommend masks. With those kinds of raw material, how long does it take you guys to produce a video and how do you decide what to do? I'll say we have two sort of sets of videos. We have the videos that are hitting sort of bigger picture issues, and then we have the videos that are more rapid response style videos that we're trying to take over the news cycle and take the oxygen out of Trump's news cycle before he gets a chance to spin the narrative and spread disinformation. And so probably one of the, the, the best and most recent examples was yesterday. We released a video called One Trick Phony, which covered the exact press conference you're talking about, and it put it side by side with the director of the CDC and his statements, where Trump was saying, oh yeah, the director the CDC, he must have been confused. Uh, you know, may wearing a mask, like, you know, I don't know about wearing a mask. Vaccine will probably come super quick. When we have the president of the United States who is spreading that kind of disinformation, that really leads to the deaths of now hundreds of thousands of Americans, and it's going to lead to the deaths of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of more, if we pursue this herd immunity slash mentality, whatever he wants to call it, way of approaching the virus, we're in big trouble. So I think it's important that we control the narrative and that we get our voices out there and that we expose the truth about what's going on. I mean, we've never before had a president so willfully try to misinform the American public. And he admitted it himself. And the sad thing is we were all shocked that he admitted that he knew it back then. He still knows it now. He's still downplaying it to this day. We should be equally as outraged today as we are that he was downplaying the virus back in February. 
And it sure looks to me like that herd immunity strategy, which, uh, you know, we had a caller earlier who was pointing out that herd immunity was not a thing. It was a theory that was developed by vaccine manufacturers in the early part of the 20th century. It's never been demonstrated to work in any natural setting with any natural disease. Especially because viruses mutate. There's no way for everybody to get this so-called herd immunity. And all it's going to do is herd immunity is code for I'm giving up. That's basically what Trump said. Well, you know, if you want to play golf and watch Fox News all day, that's what you do, right? You give up. Yeah, exactly. And that's what he's doing. I I mean, the guy... The guy doesn't do much. He sits there, he watches Fox, he plays golf, and he doesn't want to help the American people. He has no plan. He's trying to take away people's health care. He's got to be stopped. we got to vote for Joe Biden. There you go. Brett Mysalis, M-E-I-D-A-S, touch.com is the website, uh, also the Twitter handle, and the show Saturdays on SiriusXM. Brett, thanks a lot for dropping by. Good luck. Thanks for having me. Look forward to being on Sirius. Thanks, Tom. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Gary in Los Angeles. Hey, Gary, what's up? The really important aspect of the whole King Cyrus thing, Cyrus was king of Persia at the same time that Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had invaded Palestine, captured the Hebrews, enslaved them, took them to Babylon, and he destroyed the original temple, Solomon's temple. Cyrus liberated the Hebrews, sent them back to Palestine, and he built the second temple, the temple that the Romans eventually destroyed. The evangelicals, yeah, the evangelicals have been saying for years that they think Trump is the modern Cyrus because they believe that he will build the third temple. Right, and if you go back to 1974, to Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth, and then to all the books that came along with that about, you know, that that really sparked the modern-day evangelical movement, the modern-day last days part of the evangelical movement, they believe that Jesus will not return to Earth until that temple is rebuilt. That's why back in the early 80s, this guy named Goodman went onto the Temple Mound with a tent and a machine gun, killed a whole bunch of Arabs, tried to put up the tent before he was stopped, thinking that once that temp was erected, it would be a temporary second, third temple, and therefore Jesus would return to earth that very minute. Well, but the temple has to be built according to very specific architecture, the real temple. Mm. And the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim Dome of the Rock, is on the Temple Mount. Now, they, right, I, I belonged for a brief time in the 70s as a young man. I belonged to a charismatic church in Florida. So I learned a lot about the way yeah, they think. So did I, in Lansing, Michigan. Okay. And, uh, it was actually yeah. in the late, say, it was the early 70s, and it was the North Lansing Church of God. And that's where I was exposed to a lot of this stuff. They believe that Trump is going to build the third temple, which will make it possible for the second coming. They also, a lot of them believe that the apocalypse is going to be a nuclear war centered on Israel. Yeah, because I will destroy you with a fire, not with water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. think about it. Yeah, if, I get it. If, if they were to build a temple on the Temple Mount, that would mean destroying the Dome of the Rock. That would trigger right. a Which huge would, war. Oh, it absolutely would. It absolutely would. Gary, thank you for sharing that with us. Cassandra in Camas, Washington. Hey, Cassandra, what's up? I'm in the minority of people that I don't consider myself atheist, but I am agnostic. So I really don't have a lot of footage here, but... Like most agnostics, my family members and friends are mostly religious, spiritual people. One of the arguments that I find that seems to be the sticking point for convincing people of faith that Trump's one claim that he's all for, you know, right to life and so forth. So it goes back to thou shalt not kill the Ten Commandments. They need to look at all of the commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie, coveting, etc., etc. He's broken pretty much all of those two. So if they have family members who can objectively be talked to about this and point out that thou shalt not kill does not just apply also to unborn life, but lives that are here. And I think we can all pretty much realistically say he is responsible for well over 100,000 deaths at this point. Forget the first couple months, but easily over 100,000. If that is the case... Not to mention a couple of dozen kids who died in his cages. Right. Exactly. 
So all of these need to be, they cannot be cherry picked. And that is a point that can be, you know, put out there for people of faith who want to, in all good conscience, be able to vote for whomever they think is the better of the two. But these aspects of this man need to be pointed out to them on a spiritual level. And I think whether you're Christian, Jewish, or Islamic, the Ten Commandments, the, you know, the top three monotheistic religions, all go back to the Ten Commandments. So look at those Ten Commandments and realize that this man has broken them all. Now, from my son, who is a 17-year-old who's sadly going to turn 18 right after the elections and is desperately wanting to be able to vote against him, um, you had a caller last week who was coming up with different names. I, I can't remember her name now, but she was trying to think of a different term we could we could call this man. And when I came home and told my son, off the top of his head, I love him dearly. He came up with, and I hope this isn't too horrible for your sight, cancerous testicle. <laughs> that's his name for Trump. That is kind of gross. That, that is kind of gross. It is. But, but um, if you break it down, he spreads cancer in the form of racism hatred, and sadly he has reproduced many that are now in his grifter family. So that was my Well, I think you could also him. say he's, he's testosterone poisoned, basically. Yes, uh, you know, yes. He's, you know, toxic yes, masculinity. You look it up in the dictionary there. and there's a picture of Donald yes. Trump. Thank you for the call. Let's see here. Melanie in Bullhead, Arizona. Hey, Melanie, what's up? I'm a Catholic, and in 2016, I asked one of the deacons, who he was leaning towards voting for, and he said Trump, and I asked him why Trump, and he said because he was against abortion. To me, that's religion, not spirituality. Right, that's like the political institution. Yeah, exactly, and so unfortunately Catholics are doing this, and the thing that I don't understand is when I came to know the Lord, my job was to learn his teachings and emulate him. And what qualities is Christ like about Trump? I'm just absolutely mystified by this. Well, I'd also ask, please quote me a verse out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, where Jesus said he had an opinion about abortion. Yeah, exactly. But one of the Ten Commandments is, thou shalt not kill. Right, which raises the question, when does life begin? The official position of the Catholic Church up until the 19... The, the 1800s, the 19th century, was that life began when, when the baby started moving. It was called quickening. Catholic Church has had numerous positions about when life begins at different times over the last few hundred years. Melanie, I get what you're saying, and I think that there are a lot of Catholics who think, yeah, okay, I'm opposed to abortion and I would never get one, and that's, this is more of a personal decision. But I'm also concerned with the teachings of Jesus, that we should feed the hungry, that we should clothe the naked, that we should house the homeless, that we should visit those in prison, that we should stand up for those at the bottom of the food chain, as it were, or the bottom of the pile. Exactly. And the least of these things you do for my brethren, you do for me. Yeah, absolutely. Melanie, thank you. Very, very well said. Great to hear from you. Rob in Mesa, Arizona. Hey, Rob, what's up? Hey, uh, Tom, before I get to my main point, hey, the one thing uh, that that 70-year-old protester that got pushed over came out of the hospital a couple weeks back, and the one thing that Trump said about him was he hit the ground faster than he was pushed. Just add the list Mm -hmm. of that Trump is a gravity denier onto the list of, you know, (laughs) trivial things. Okay, got it, Rob. Anyways, um, I was calling to, to make a point that we should campaign for Trump to basically come out and be hard on voter fraud. And I don't mean against individuals voting fraudulently, but more at the state and county levels to say, hey, if you state or county detract someone from voting who has a legal right to vote, there should be laws in place to take care of that. Now, Trump will never fall for that because he wants voter fraud to take place. But if we put the pressure on him to do it and he doesn't do it, then that will look bad for him. Yeah, maybe. I, you know, I think that there's just going to be a cloud of screaming and lies and freak out and all kinds of stuff that are going to be surrounding him if he loses. Frankly, if he wins as well, it's going to be tough to get any kind of message through. But points well taken, Rob. Rob, thank you for the call. Rick in Bellingham, Washington. Hey, Rick, what's up? Thank you for your defense of democracy during this time of betrayal and treachery by Trump and the Republicans that support him. My wife and I recently donated $500 to the Biden-Harris campaign, and we've given to Warren. And where can we most effectively make donation to elect Biden and down-ballot Democrats? 
I would guess that if you want to help Joe Biden become president, giving money directly to his campaign would be real high on that list. The down ballot races, you've got two organizations that generally do a pretty good job of representing those. That's the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, the DSCC, and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the DCCC. There are some folks who are somewhat reluctant to donate, though, to those two groups because they have traditionally been supportive of what you might call corporate Democrats and not particularly supportive of what you might call progressive Democrats. And so in that regard, I would look at individual races. If there's somebody that you think is really going to do a good job in a particularly critical state, just to pull an example out of the air, Amy McGrath in Kentucky, she's taking on Mitch McConnell. She's not the world's most progressive candidate, but she's a good, solid Democrat. She has a chance of winning. If you were to decide, and I'm saying do your own homework and find the candidates who are supporting the issues that you really care about. Her issues tend to be you know, more around the military because she's an ex-fighter pilot. But bottom line, then find those candidates that you think are going to do the job and support those campaigns directly. You can make campaign contributions directly to them. Does that make sense, Rick? That does. You know, I was looking for something that generally could do that to get out voters. I don't know about whether Act Blue does that or not. Act Blue is just a money processing operation, basically, that is that is run by, I think, by Tony Podesta's brother, or owned by him, whatever. And, you know, they're doing very well, thank you very much, but they're basically just a bank. So okay. you, you want to go to the directly to the candidates. Rick, thanks a lot for the call. Frank in uh, Hood River, Oregon. Hey, Frank, you're just up the road from us. What's up? I really think the very best thing that Trump and Biden can do is to just lay out all the crimes and misdeeds that Trump has done since he's been president and even before he was president. I mean, his whole life he's been a cheater, trying to cheat in the elections now. But, you know, people need to be reminded what kind of man is going to be running the country for the next four years if it's Trump. I really think even the Republicans, if they see these facts laid out with no punches pulled, everything that he's done, the environment, foreign policy, everything, you're going to get a lot of Republican voters coming over and voting against Trump, not so much for Biden, but against Trump. And I think it will be a slam dunk. I think that's the best thing that Biden and Harris can do. Do you think that they are going to do this? There's a bunch of groups out there, Lincoln Cabin or the Lincoln Republicans, excuse me, and others who are basically trying to say to voters, you know, Trump is terrible, therefore vote for Biden. I think that most Americans have known that for the better part of three years. In fact, I think that that's part of his appeal to the people who like to, quote, own the libs and all that kind of stuff. And really what we need to be doing and it shouldn't be Republican groups like the Lincoln Republicans doing it. But what we need to be doing is building an affirmative case for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Here's why these people should be president and vice president. Here's what they will do. Here is what the Democratic Party has always stood for. Here's what the Democratic Party wants to do going forward. I'm with you. Uh, you know, I think that we need to be building that case, Frank, in, in a very positive way. And I think that there's a strong case to be built. You know, Bernie over the weekend was on TV saying, yeah, you know, Biden should talk more about the economic stuff he's going to do because he's already committed to it. He's got the most progressive platform in the history of the United States. I'm scared that Biden and the Democrats are just going to give pretty much a pass to Trump for the horrible, horrible things he's doing. This is the worst president in history. And they're just going to basically not even mention. Oh, well, you, you can do both, Frank. People. Pardon me? You can do both. You can talk about, you know, the American carnage that Trump right. and Miller and Pence have brought us and then say, you know, and we're going to bring America together and we're going to heal this country. I really got this hit over the weekend. I was watching this clip of Joe Biden talking to a woman who had lost her husband. She was an older woman and her husband had recently died. And Joe listened to her story and then he said, you know, they just never leave you. It never leaves. The pain never leaves, but the memory of them never leaves. And she said, you're so right. And it suddenly hit me as I was watching that. This is a guy who's probably going to be less likely to send our soldiers to war. He understands the pain of somebody dying in your family. Look, look what he did to the Kurds. Trump okay. did. Yeah, no, Trump yeah. stabbed him in the exactly. back, and the, and the Kurds exactly. have been our allies since exactly. before World War II. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. 
NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Dave in Las Vegas. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind today? If the Republican Trump strategy is to decertify the Republican governors to a majority vote Trump into the, you know, back- it wouldn't be the governors. It would be the state legislatures. The governors have no say in it. But yeah, keep going. Oh, okay, the state, the state. Okay. Um, could the House then, rather than go along with this fiasco, just move to impeach him right then, and then you force the Senate to explain to the American people how they're going to let Trump steal the vote away from the American people? I wish it was that simple or that straightforward. The House rules, of course, a majority of members of the House can always amend their rules, but the House rules basically say that the impeachment, and this is how it's always worked, any impeachment proceeding must begin in the Judiciary Committee. There's this one committee that, you know, kind of oversees law in America, the Law and Order Committee, the Judiciary Committee. And they would have to, and this is the committee that referred out the articles of impeachment to the full House. The committee then comes to the House and makes their sales pitch, you know, makes their, actually makes a case against the president. They hold the trial in the House, but the Judiciary Committee issues the, what would you call it, indictment, essentially. And then the trial is held in the House of Representatives, and if the president is convicted in that trial, he is impeached. It doesn't mean he's been removed from office, but he is impeached. He is convicted. I shouldn't have used the word trial. That is what the Senate does. They hold the trial to determine whether the president gets uh, removed from office or not. I lack a better word for it because the House has to debate, do we think he's guilty or not? And if they think he's guilty, then they impeach him. And he is now impeached, which means that the, the majority of members of the House have said, we believe this man is guilty of these crimes and should be removed from office. He is certified as a criminal. And then they pass that to the Senate to see if the Senate wants to actually remove him from office. And in this case, obviously, the Senate said no. And I would submit to you, Dave, that if they try this again, you'll have the same result. It's not going to work. So, Dave, I salute your enthusiasm and uh, spot on. But I just don't see how it plays out. Dave, thanks for the call. John in Hillsborough, Oregon. Hey, John, how are you doing there in Hillsborough? Smoky as ever, you know. I can't even walk my little doggy without, you know, coughing. Anyway. What I've heard from some political pundits, at least 40 to 42 percent of people are hardcore Trumpers, and so they will vote for it. Then I heard on an economic level that because of this virus, if we do get over it or whatever, there's going to be over 42 percent of people who are going to be permanently unemployed because of how the virus has kind of destroyed the service industry and et cetera, et cetera. So my whole question is, okay, if Trump wins... He's not going to help the 42% who are permanently unemployed. If Biden wins, Biden will probably use the option what FDR did back in 35 and do, you know, like CCC, WPA. 
Right. And Put people those back 42% to work with government will jobs. get some relief. Okay, it sounds like it sounds like John uh, John just vanished. Richard in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Richard, what's up? Uh, you know, the key to me that seems to be the election is the electoral vote. I'm convinced Biden is going to win the popular vote by six million, but the electoral college is not going to change when we have 66 Republican senators. I'm wondering your input is what are the Democrats doing to make sure they win the electoral vote in the three states that made the difference last time? That seems to be the key to me. What are your thoughts? I agree, Richard. Uh, you know, the Electoral College is the only thing that matters under our Constitution, tragically. Al Gore won the popular vote by a half million votes. Hillary Clinton won it by three million votes. So what the Democratic Party is doing, what individual Democratic candidates are doing, what the campaigns are doing, and what a lot of the, uh, of the groups that support them is they're just pouring money into these swing states. And also is pouring money into states that could become swing states, like Florida and Texas. So we will learn a lot in the week after November 3rd, whether we succeeded in flushing the, you know what. People come up to me, well, we need to do something. Well, you're not going to do something because that's the way the Constitution is written. And you got 66 senators you need to even get to states to vote for it, to change it. I think it's 51 or 52 Republicans, whatever it is. In any case, the Republicans hold the majority in the Senate. Spot on. Dave in Las Vegas. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind today? If the Republican Trump strategy is to decertify the Republican governors to a majority vote Trump into the, you know, back- it wouldn't be the governors; it would be the state legislatures. The governors have no say in it. But yeah, keep going. Oh, okay. the state, the state. Okay, um, could the House then, rather than go along with this fiasco, just move to impeach him right then, and then you force the Senate to explain to the American people how they're going to let Trump steal the vote away from the American people? I wish it was that simple or that straightforward. The House rules, of course, a majority of members of the House can always amend their rules, but the House rules basically say that the impeachment, and this is how it's always worked, any impeachment proceeding must begin in the Judiciary Committee. There's this one committee that, you know, kind of oversees law in America, the Law and Order Committee, the Judiciary Committee. And they would have to, and this is the committee that referred out the articles of impeachment to the full House. The committee then comes to the House and makes their sales pitch, you know, makes their, actually makes a case against the president. They hold the trial in the House, but the Judiciary Committee issues the, what would you call it, indictment, essentially. And then the trial is held in the House of Representatives, and if the president is convicted in that trial, he is impeached. It doesn't mean he's been removed from office, but he is impeached. He is convicted. I shouldn't have used the word trial. That is what the Senate does. They hold the trial to determine whether the president gets uh, removed from office or not. I lack a better word for it because the House has to debate, do we think he's guilty or not? And if they think he's guilty, then they impeach him and he is now impeached, which means that the, the majority of members of the House have said, we believe this man is guilty of these crimes and should be removed from office. He is certified as a criminal. And then they pass that to the Senate to see if the Senate wants to actually remove him from office. And in this case, obviously, the Senate said no. And I would submit to you, Dave, that if they try this again, you'll have the same result. It's not going to work. So, Dave, I salute your enthusiasm and uh, spot on. But I just don't see how it plays out. Dave, thanks for the call. John in Hillsborough, Oregon. Hey, John, how are you doing there in Hillsborough? Smoky as ever, you know. I can't even walk my little doggy without, you know, coughing. Anyway. What I've heard from some political pundits, at least 40 to 42 percent of people are hardcore Trumpers, and so they will vote for it. Then I heard on an economic level that because of this virus, if we do get over it or whatever, there's going to be over 42 percent of people who are going to be permanently unemployed because of how the virus has kind of destroyed the service industry, and et cetera, et cetera. So my whole question is, okay, if Trump wins... He's not going to help the 42% who are permanently unemployed. If Biden wins, Biden will probably use the option of what FDR did back in 35 and do, you know, like CCC, WPA. Right. And Put people those back 42% to work will get jobs. some relief. It sounds like John, uh, John just vanished. Meanwhile, over at FreedomWorks, you know, that organization that Charles Koch and his buddies kicked off a while back, the FreedomWorks, the organization that brought us the Tea Party back when we were going to try putting Romney care into place, reinvented as Obamacare. FreedomWorks sent me an email yesterday 
Dear Barney, the left is openly touting their post-election strategy to win the November elections. This is going out to millions of people, presumably. In fact, one Michael Bloomberg-funded group working for the Democratic National Committee and pro-Biden super PACs is insisting Election Day will be a red mirage. In other words, President Trump could win on Election Day in a landslide, only to see his victory evaporate at the hands of the left's army of bought and paid for poll workers and Democrat election officials responsible for policing vote-by-mail results in battleground states. Barney, I call it a blue coup. You get this? They're actually telling Republicans that if Trump doesn't win on election day, any of those mail-in ballots that get counted after election day, that's all evidence of fraud. That's some kind of scam. Meanwhile, here in Oregon, and and see, this is the kind of thing that's going viral, particularly on Facebook. Facebook seems to be the giant cesspool where, like, the vast majority of this stuff has been happening for years and continues to happen. And one of the stories that went absolutely viral on Facebook, specific to Corbett, Oregon, a little town in Oregon, was that black Antifa people are coming and setting fires and then waiting for you to leave your house so they can loot your house. And don't leave your daughter behind. Okay, so here's the story. This is by Jason Wilson in The Guardian. Residents of Corbett in Multnomah County. Multnomah County is right here. I'm in Multnomah County. This is also Portland. Met with law enforcement officials on Saturday afternoon after several people complained of being subjected to illegal roadblocks the previous night. Vigilante groups had sprung up Friday afternoon, some heavily armed. They set up two roadblocks with cars and household chairs. Drivers who were stopped said they were asked to identify themselves and their connection to the town. On at least two occasions, police were on the scene and did not intervene in the illegal traffic stops. One of the people stopped was LaToya Robinson, who had recently been evacuated with her family from the town of Sandy, Oregon to what she thought would be the relative safety of Corbett, where she was staying with a friend. She was stopped, and her children, she, it turns out, is African-American. The men who stopped her, most of whom were armed, were dressed in hunting-style clothes and camouflage, she says. No legal authority. She said she was questioned by a heavily armed man carrying an AR-15. He said, you're not from around here, are you? And detained her for quite some time. On her return journey, the same thing happened with a different armed, white, unmasked Yahoo. And she said she saw two Multnomah County Sheriff's cruisers stop by the roadblock, an officer talking with one of the people running the roadblock. We now have the chair of the county, Deborah Caffery, who is just raising hell about this. Peter in Lawton, Oklahoma. Hey, Peter, what's on your mind today? Yes, sir. I got it tweet yesterday from Marsha Blackburn stating that the Republicans will not change the Constitution. And that to me sounds like a signal because we both know that the Cokes has been trying to get these states lined up to have a vote to change the Constitution. Do you think right. that will happen if Trump gets reelected? Yes, I do. The Convention of States has been rehearsing the last couple of years. They've been drawing hundreds of people to Washington, D.C. every year. You can look it up. Convention of States is what it's called. In fact, I think conventionofstates.org.com is their website. And it's a plan by right-wing billionaires to open up the Constitution in a constitutional convention and rewrite it to make the Constitution even more friendly to billionaires and big corporations and even more hostile to average Americans having the right to have a labor union, the right to have unemployment insurance, the right to have Medicare, Medicaid, or any kind of government welfare program. They want to eliminate all those things. So if Marsha Blackburn feels the need to say, no, we're not really trying to do that, that should be the thing that guarantees your understanding, Peter, that that's exactly what they're up to. I read uh, a couple of years ago, one of the ideas they're floating is appointing U.S. senators again, like in the past. Right, yeah, they want to undo what, I think it's the 19th Amendment, or whatever the amendment was that was that allowed us to vote for our senators, because in the original Constitution, the senators were appointed by the states, but it became so corrupt. I mean, I think it was the election of 1896, as I recall, where Mr. Cooper, he was a copper baron from, I think it was Montana, I might be wrong on the state, and he literally stood in the back of the state Senate 
with a pocket full of envelopes, and each envelope was a $1,000 bill. We used to make $1,000 bills back then. And a $1,000 bill back then was worth like $100,000 in today's money. Right. And he said, anybody who votes for me for United States Senate, I will give you an envelope on the way out. And they voted for him and sent him off to Washington, D.C., and the United States Senate itself for a whole year refused to seat him. Uh, eventually he got seated, and I don't recall if he got reelected or not, but that led, that incident led to that amendment to the Constitution. And yeah, you've got, you got right-wing cranks saying, hey, let's go back to that old corrupt way where the billionaires could just stand in the back of the room and pass out money. We kind of like that. Peter, thanks for the call, and thanks for listening to our program there in Oklahoma. John in Vacaville, California. Hey, John, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Am I wrong if I believe that my vote does not count because Hillary beat Trump by three million votes, but Trump is the president because of the Electoral College? And that makes me believe that the popular vote, my vote, does not count. What say you? I say that your vote does actually count on two different levels. First of all, if you show up and vote, you're not just going to be voting for president. And there may be in Vacaville, California there, you may have some good progressive candidates. There may be issues on the ballots. There may be judges. I mean, typically there are really good reasons to vote outside of the president, number one. Number two, if, if Donald Trump loses the popular vote this time by six or seven or eight or 10 million votes, which would be your vote, you know, votes that don't count in quotes with regard to the Electoral College, but are part of the popular vote. That will strengthen the argument that we are all making that it's time to do away with the Electoral College. We have not had a Republican president elected by the people uh, since 1988, since, uh, since George Herbert Walker Bush first ran for election after, the, you know, after Reagan retired. And that was the last time a Republican president actually won a majority of votes and won the Electoral College. George W. Bush lost the, uh, lost the popular vote by a half million votes, and his brothers and the Supreme Court stole the election for him in Florida. And Donald Trump lost the popular vote by three million votes. Frankly, I think there was some nefarious stuff going on in Ohio, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania that handed the vote to Donald Trump. But I think that your vote does count, John, because it adds to that momentum. It adds to that wall of water that's going to wash over the Republican Party this fall. So I would encourage you strongly to show up and vote. John, thank you for the call. It's a thought-provoking question, and it's an important one. John in Hillsborough, Oregon. Hey, John, what's on your mind? Your opening interview with Dr. Parsi, and yeah, he was talking Parsi. about U.N. resolution of maybe uh, not really, but Pompeo wants to use something like that to sort of maybe harass Iranian shipping in the Persian Gulf. Mm -hmm. Well, there's this movie that was, it's a docudrama, it's called Threads. It really goes into shipping being harassed in the Gulf of Hormuz, and then it escalates with us. Back in 83, they still had the Soviet Union invading Iran to protect their interest on their their borders, and so the United States sends in the Marines, and then it becomes a shooting war, and then a thermonuclear war. So you but found if it you on Google YouTube? Threads, it will tell you, it will come up with a whole story of why it was made, and um, it's pretty, um, well, detailed. People were so appalled by it, they said, well, this is not going to make any money for us, because mm -hmm. it's done pretty good, pretty well for its time, yeah. and it does go in detail of how the whole situation transpired. And so when yeah. Dr. Parsi was talking, it was almost out of the whole playbook. And so it's a flashback. Just, yeah, um, nobody thought, you know, when, when Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo, I mean, the world didn't go, oh my God, here comes World War One. And of yeah. course, it puts a human factor in it, too. All right, John, thanks a lot for the call. Thank you for and letting stay me safe there in Hillsboro. Steve in Simi Valley, California. Hey, Steve, what's up? If the race goes to the Congress. If it does, mm -hmm. it's going to be after January 1st. That means a new Congress will be seated. And as you know, for a vice president, the Senate would vote on that. Each one would have a vote. And the Democrats stand a good chance of taking the Senate. So you could have a Trump presidency with Camilla Harris as vice president of the United States. 
No, under the 12th Amendment, it's not up to the Senate. It's up to the House of Representatives. And even the House of Representatives doesn't get to vote. Each state's congressional delegation, and I, I read the 12th Amendment during the break, the quorum that they're talking about is members of the House, of the U.S. House of Representatives, members of the Senate. But each state's delegation, you know, here in Oregon, we have, I believe, five members of our congressional delegation. They collectively would have one vote. And that one vote would be given to them, the person that they would have to vote for, they would be directed to cast that vote by the combined membership of the Oregon House and the Oregon Senate. Okay. okay. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Steve. Yeah, I mean, read the 12th Amendment. But the 12th Amendment has been updated or essentially amended by a law that was passed. But I, I referenced all that in that op-ed that I wrote months ago talking about these very issues. Howard in Mahdi, Alabama. Hey, Howard, what's up? Uh, hi, Tom. A few years ago, I served on a Los Angeles grand jury. And actually, there are two kinds of grand juries, an accusatory grand jury and an investigatory grand jury. To me, there's a direct parallel with impeachment proceedings in the House of Representatives. In other words, there's no judge. Prosecution presents its evidence, and a true bill of indictment is brought if it's guilty as charged, and then it passes on to a trial jury. So in the House of Representatives, it seems like there's a direct parallel to that. The burden of proof yeah. is probable cause, by the way. Right. The case is made, the investigation is done by the Judiciary Committee, by and large. The House itself can ask for witnesses, and, and you know, I, I believe that they did in the case of Trump. And they basically build the case to the House, and then the House votes on it, and then the House sends the so-called impeachment managers to the Senate to make their case to the senators. And that was actually fairly brilliantly done. I mean, several of those guys were Adam Schiff, Hakeem Jeffries. They were brilliant. Mm. I mean, Jeffries and Smith, I, I, I just, I have so much respect for those guys. They are so, they, they are so confident, such, such great, great lawyers, great legislators. Howard, thank you. Thank you very much for the call. Yeah, I think, I think you're onto something. Lou in Los Angeles. Hey, Lou, what's up? The state legislatures can decide who the president is. They can vote for Trump, even though the state itself, popular vote, went to Biden. But here's why I disagree with it. 20 years ago, when it was Florida, 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 and for more than a month, there were court decisions. There was also a lot of uh, recounting of votes. And the Republicans controlled Florida legislature. And they said, uh, several members said, well, we don't really care what the court says or what the final vote is. We're just going to vote for the Republican, for George W. Bush. That's correct. Well, all right. But a few days later, well, it could be a week later. I remember exactly. Either there was a court decision or it may have been some learned legal experts. I can't remember which said you can't do that. You can't change the rules in the middle of the game. So you want to change it to that the legislature makes a decision, fine. And that will apply four years ago at the next presidential election. You can't change it in the middle of the election. And after right. that... That had to do with state laws, Lou. That was, you're you're talking law. about the Florida Supreme Court decision that mandated that a statewide recount happen. And that was taken to the U.S. Supreme Court in the Bush v. Gore case where George Bush sued Al Gore at the Supreme Court saying that if the state Supreme Court's decision to count every vote in Florida was actually carried out, it would, quote, cause irreparable harm to plaintiff George W. Bush, end quote. But that's not the 12th Amendment scenario that I'm talking about. The 12th Amendment scenario well, is I'm, when... Uh, what you said is not what I'm talking about. That this is something else. That, that the, the Florida legislature or certain Republican members said it doesn't matter what the courts I know. Were. It doesn't. I know. They, so, the, the Constitution says that a state can decide how they're going to cast their electoral votes. And, and you know, if they're going to do that by statute, if they're going to, as Nebraska and Maine have done, where they've decided they're going to split up their vote, or every other state has done by statute, these are state laws that says whoever gets the majority of votes, all of the electors for the state go for that person. Yeah, that's by statute. And if you're going to change the way you count it, you've got to change the statute. What I'm talking about has nothing to do with that. What, that, was, that was what happened in Florida. What I'm talking about is if 
there aren't 270 electoral votes for either candidate because a number of states say we will not submit, we cannot submit a certified count of our electoral vote to Congress, to the U.S. Congress. If they say we can't do that, this is what the 12th Amendment says. Uh, first of all, the, president having, uh, the person having the greatest number of votes for president shall be the president if such number be a majority of the whole number of electors. Okay, so, but if it's not 270, then, and if no person have such majority, in other words, if it's not 270, then from the persons having the highest numbers not exceeding three on the list of those voted for as president, the House of Representatives shall choose immediately by ballot the president, but in choosing the president, the votes shall be taken by states. The representative from each state having one vote, a quorum for this purpose shall consist of a member or members from two-thirds of the states and a majority of all the states shall be necessary for choice. In other words, this, the, it gets thrown to the state legislatures. That's what I'm saying. Lou, I get what you're, I get what you're talking about, and you're, you're absolutely right. Thanks so much for the call. Thanks for being with us today. We're going to make this work. We're going to make this work. So get out there, get active, tag. You're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.